You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents... Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House, LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We want to grow our Monster Talk audience, and the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as The Accidental Creative, Big Picture Science, and Legends of the Old West. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Legends tell of an ancient terror, a snake so deadly that nearly every aspect of it is lethal. It's the focus of ancient zoological speculation, medieval alchemical recipes, and as fierce opponents in fantasy gaming and literature. Probably the most famous recent example comes from Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. The many fearsome beasts that roam our land, none is more deadly than the basilisk, capable of living for hundreds of years. Instant death awaits any who meet this giant serpent's eye. Spiders flee before it. Ron, this is it. The monster in the Chamber of Secrets is a basilisk. That's why I can hear it speak. It's a snake. But by the time we finish this episode, you'll understand why if I had a pet basilisk, I'd probably name it mm, Glance Harmstrong. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster.
Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. Today we're going to be discussing what's probably the most overpowered monster we've ever tackled on this show. We'll be talking about the ancient legend of the basilisk and the weird modern take on the idea that ties into philosophy, game theory, and artificial intelligence. It's a wild ride, and to be honest, I don't think I've ever learned so much while preparing one of these shows. I edit the show for a regular feed because we have a lot of people who listen with their families and have children, or who are themselves young subscribers. Our Patreon feed usually has more swearing left in and the occasional bit of body humor. I've made a lot of cuts in the free version this week to bring things down a little bit, but even so, I feel like I have to slap an explicit tag on this episode. This is largely for biological reasons. It's also because some people might be concerned about information hazards. For that reason, even in the free feed, I've decided to not beep out the language where it is left intact. I think, even with the edits, you should probably treat this episode as not safe for work. Okay, that's enough warnings. There's some rock-solid science in this episode and a ton of fascinating links in the show notes. If the contents of our discussion inspire you to do further research, there's where you can get things going. Let's get on to some monster talk. Karen, I've been wanting to talk about basilisks for a long time. <laughs> Me too. So, we're, yeah, we're not, not typical people. No, no, no. I know. It's our, just weird. Our bucket lists are very strange. They are. I was looking at our emails. It's like I was, I was thinking about doing this episode in 2017, 2018, 2019, and so on. <laughs> so the time has come. Let's talk about basilisks. Yes, I mean, there's so much ground to cover. A, a lot of stories and beliefs and claims all interwoven into this topic. It's yeah, really and a lot of changes in scale over the history. <laughs> <laughs> you got that one in very early. Yes. <laughs> so let's start with a, uh, a description. Um, what is a basilisk? I, when I think about uh, basilisks, it reminds me very much of the chupacabra. Which, in in the sense that when the chupacabra was originally reported, it was a cool little humanoid alien thing. It was really it had spikes on its back. It was really mysterious. It was tied to UFO lore. Mm -hmm. And then over time, it turned into a hairless dog, which is I'll be honest, not that interesting. Um, <laughs> and and I I like the ones that are like people are speculating that they're alien pets, not you know mm -hmm. not not a dog with mange. I mean, for us as yeah, researchers, it's a yeah, yeah, it's a little mundane. But the basilisk is is kind of like the inverse of that. It starts out as a snake. Um, they called it the king of serpents. Um, it was supposed to be a small snake, maybe I don't know what twelve fingers in length is, but that's one of the earliest descriptions. Time for a finger insert. The term finger as a unit of measure has had many meanings, which is unsurprising considering how integral hands are and how humans typically interact with the physical world. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but depending on when and where the term's used, finger can refer to the length of the finger or the width of the finger. And from its use in bars, as, a, as in a finger of whiskey, to measuring cloth or textiles, to its long use in ancient medical texts, it can mean a lot of different kinds of measurements. Later in this episode, we'll hear it translated to mean roughly an inch, but it could be, depending on use, anything from roughly three quarters of an inch to four inches in length. So the original basilisk legend was speaking of a serpent relatively humble in its overall size, 
but enormous in its lethality. But it's Why? super, super venomous. Like the one thing that never changes is the basilisk is one of the most lethal monsters in your bestiary or possibly bestiary, depending on how you want to pronounce that. It's got a much longer history as well than, than uh, the chupacabra. This thing goes back a long time. We're talking uh, Pliny the Elder. I mean, this is old. Yes. It's an old legend. Mm -hmm. It's an old monster. And then some crossover too with other monsters, which we'll get to. Yeah. And so originally... It was a snake. Now, they called it the Serpent King because on its head, it had something like these little protuberances that made it into look like a crown. Oh. If it looked at you, you died. <laughs> also, and this is kind of important, if it breathed on you, mm -hmm. uh, you died. Or if you, touched it, you. Or yeah, if you touched it, by the way, if you touched it, yes, you died. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's very dangerous. I mean, I, I love the legends about it because it's like everything about it is lethal. Like, it's just the most lethal thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But it does start largely as a snake. I mean, it's it's treated as a kind of snake. It sounds really like a cobra almost. One recurring theme I think we'll come to in this episode is this idea of um, euhemerism, which is, I love this. It's the idea that... Uh, that legends, myths and legends, probably have a real thing at their base. Like there's a real thing at the root of them. And, right. and we... A kind of grain of truth. Yeah. And like, you, you know, I think about um, how many times we as uh, sort of monster researchers, paranormal researchers, we, we, we go in with what I like to think of as uh, the, the presumption of sincerity. That whatever's being reported, at the root of it, it's probably not a hoax. It's probably, like, there's probably an explanation, right, that, that's more fitting in the, the natural world, right? Right, right. And so I think there's um, an urge, like, there's, a, there's a, an urge to, like, say whatever this legend is, there's probably a natural explanation. But maybe not. I mean, maybe that that's something we should push back from. Like, I mean, you think about, we talked about blimmies, like the people with no heads who have a face on their chest. I mean, okay, that's probably not a real thing. <laughs> it's possible. Never. These are just made up. With the basilisk, then is it about the same size as a snake or is it smaller, well, larger? Does it come in different sizes? Well, they said 12 fingers, and I don't know if that means length to length or side to side, but I mean, not a big snake. I mean, not a big snake. Although over time, it becomes associated with really big snakes. Uh, like it becomes a giant snake. It, you know, I think mm -hmm. it's the, because they call it the king of snakes. People mm -hmm. want to tie it in uh, to the idea that it's also large. But yeah. much like the uh, Mongolian death worm, which uh, people always picture it being like a worm from Dune, but in the mm -hmm. actual lore, you know, two or three feet big. I mean, it's not big, you know. Right. So, right. but it does. Okay. It does sound a lot like a cobra. It really does sound a lot like a cobra. Yeah, it, it does. Yeah. It but how are they allegedly created then? Because I believe there are several theories. Well, so something happens. So in the original stories, they sound like a snake, right? Mm -hmm. But over time, the story changes, and in the Middle Ages, um, the the stories about them change and their appearance changes. And in some ways they become conflated with another monster. So, mm -hmm. so the original way they'd be created is they're just a snake. So they're, they're going to reproduce through eggs. Right. 
But there was, I mean, even like back in the the time of uh, the Romans, they were thinking maybe um, there was something like, okay, so like the, I think it's the bird, the ibis, which is common in Egypt. The ibises eat snakes. And so people were afraid that if you ate an ibis egg, for example, that it would like make, it would kill you because ibises eat snakes. So therefore their eggs would be toxic, which is just not not true. Uh, (laughs) I'm not suggesting we all go out and have an ibis omelet, but that's just not a real thing. Mm. Um, (laughs) so somehow in the middle ages, and I think a lot of this is tied to alchemy because alchemy, Mm -hmm. remember long ago, we did an episode on the homunculus (laughs) and I I do. I absolutely do. And it's got one of my favorite episode titles ever, uh, which, because the homunculus, uh, was created by, at least in part by masturbating into a jar and, Mm -hmm. uh, burying, um, that jar in a pile of dung. Everybody seemed to think that dung had some sort of progenitive power. I don't know why, but... That was back in Monster Talk episode 53, Onan, the Jar Burying. Yeah, I think that's because, like soil as well, there were theories at that time that uh, a woman's womb was almost like a garden and um, that sperm would basically be... Well, the seed would oh, yeah, uh, that, that, yes, you know, yes. be planted in her garden. So I think dung or soil um, is a kind of similar theme for, for any kind of creation like that. And dung also stays warm uh, it, it, if you have big piles of it because it goes through biological processes of, of uh, being digested by bacteria. So it generates heat. And, I mean, it is possible to, you know, have like haystacks and dung stacks and this sort of thing to burst into flame if the weather's right. <laughs> so. Yeah, but I think that homunculus is such an interesting idea. I know that that's not what we're talking about, but when we think about modern-day IVF and uh, just developments in assisted reproductive technology, uh, I, I think that's a kind of early version of that, you know, creating human life outside of the body. Until the, uh, I guess, microscopy kind of like showed otherwise, uh, that would be... Anthony von Leeuwenhoek was an early advocate for microscopy whose research helped bring the field to fame. He was a Dutch businessman and an amateur scientist, and I'll put a link in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about him. They, they learned that, like, you know, they're looking at everything that, that they can that's small, and, you know, one of the things, you know, when you're examining small things, why not look at some sperm, and, you know? Uh, they, there was an expectation that there was a tiny person in there, and that, like, that person just grew. You know. Yes, yeah, I think there were, um, you know, theories that uh, uh, I think that there were little people in ovaries, yeah, or that there were little people in sperm. In sperm, so. yeah, yeah, and and so as we now know, that's actually like half the genetic information comes from the mother, and half the genetic right. information comes from the father. But these theories are happening in a time when there is a lot of confusion. I mean, there are. The idea of the monster of, as being a chimera, like the idea that things, the creatures that are not related at all could crossbreed, right? You know, right. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I don't want to get into how centaurs well, might be formed, but still we believe in yeah, that. Exactly. <laughs> they do. They do. People do still believe in that. But I mean, this idea that species could just crossbreed that are not even closely related at all and produce mm-hmm. interesting results. Uh, so what happens is the idea of the basilisk becomes somehow involved with the idea that it is parented by a, a rooster mm-hmm. who lays an egg <laughs> yeah. and then that egg is placed in a dunghill and, in, and it's incubated by a toad 
and eventually that some people would add that it has to be at certain astrological periods for this to work. You need that because otherwise that makes sense. Yeah. it would, it would explain like, well, I tried all this and it didn't work, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's, you probably got the astrology wrong. Um, anyway, that, which, which may sound ridiculous to us right now, but it was being printed up in alchemical texts and the, which is strange, right? Like why? Now, now a lot of alchemical texts are, are confusing and allegorical because mm-hmm. they use codes because they were trying to hide what they were doing from right. other people. Now, mm-hmm. but I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think this is, this is more like the homunculus where there's an alchemical formula and you're buying your important textbook because you want to like be a super nerd in the you know 1400s or whatever. And you, you get the instructions. Okay, I'm going to make myself a, a basilisk. Let me see. I'm just going to start by getting the egg of a rooster. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, <laughs> huh. <laughs> well, in some cases, too, I'd read that uh, it was incubated by a hen. So in, in some cases, it was a um, or a toad. Yeah, it gets a little bit confusing. Yeah, but, the, the, um, there's just a little bit of inconsistency. But, but let's talk about these uh, rooster eggs. Uh, I, th- th- this was the first point where I'm like, why would they think that? It seems like a weird thing to think. So yeah, Even more rare than hen's teeth. <laughs> yeah, you would think so. Except, <laughs> unlike hen's teeth, you know, we've talked about this too. This is so we've talked about a lot of stuff on Monster Talk. <laughs> weird stuff, yeah. The hen's and roosters have the genetic instructions to make teeth and what we learned from one of our interviewees. That was back in Monster Talk episode number 17 monsters from the lab was that mm-hmm. you can turn on the genes and actually produce hens with teeth uh which is tied to like that jack corner uh dinosaur project where he wants to sort of re-engineer uh, dinosaurs by changing the genetics and like reverse engineering them from birds like so like just slowly work backwards to get back to a dinosaur which is an interesting idea um but i've seen that movie so th- so there's two ideas about rooster eggs, which I think are very interesting. So this idea the, uh, that a rooster might lay an egg, the, the first idea is that there were real things known as rooster eggs, and there still are. And what these are, uh, in folkloric terms, it's mm-hmm. the first eggs laid by a female chicken that come mm-hmm. out um like it's their very earliest eggs and they are small and weird looking and they don't have yolks so if a hen lays one of these strange looking sort of failed attempts at an egg mm-hmm. they, they called them rooster eggs or cock eggs oh okay because yeah I, hens start laying eggs from a very early age i think mm-hmm. it's about three or four months yeah, um, yeah, no. and in some ways, they some sometimes they can even have virgin birds. Um, I believe that they don't fare terribly well when they, um, you know, actually have a an embryo um, that hasn't been fertilized. Um, but yeah, that that is possible with some birds. Yeah, that's called. Um... Parthenogenesis, like like parthenogenesis, that's like, it. Like yeah. like Athena being burst full form from Zeus's head, Parthenon. Yeah, yeah, yep, but yep. chickens can do that, and I, I believe so um, several a few other lizards can do it. Can. Yep, yep. Yes, but the, not the, always terribly successfully. Occasionally, Jewish uh, ladies and. <laughs> 
Yes, <laughs> once or twice. <laughs> anyway. Speaking of which, go and check out our episode of Monster Talk Live where we talk about Marian apparitions. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the irony is not lost on me that in order to explain parthenogenesis with more clarity, I find that I must perform an insertion. Parthenogenesis comes from the roots parthenos, which means virgin, and genesis, which means creation. So literally, it's a virgin creation. Once again, my comfortable sense of understanding was rattled while working on this episode. I thought that a female vertebrate that produced an offspring without a male partner would necessarily make a female offspring, because where would the male chromosome come from? But I was wrong. Some parthenogenesis can produce male offspring. In fact, I found a journal article in Nature about an experiment that produced parthenogenic offspring, some of which survived to adulthood, and produced a sexually diploid rooster. And I believe this means that the rooster had two full sets of sex chromosomes, as it would from a normal two-parent fertilization. I am grossly unqualified to explain the mechanics of that, but regardless, I found it quite interesting. Famously, such asexual reproduction seems quite common in certain lizards, including big monitor lizards, and suggests that they may have the ability to single-handedly colonize new territory with one adventurous female at the genetic helm. Snakes in zoos have also been known to perform this kind of reproduction. The other kind of thing that can cause a, a, a rooster egg is that roosters and hens uh, are very similar to each other, and occasionally, a hen will have a genetic defect or a, um, a hormonal defect and stop producing the female hormones and start overproducing male. Um, and what will happen can to happen her... happen in humans, too. It can. It absolutely can. And what happens is that the all her female characteristics start to fall away. She'll develop mm -hmm. externally. She'll start to look like a rooster. She'll behave like a rooster. And in some cases can still lay eggs. So she will be very male in her appearance, but can still lay eggs. And that may also be a possible explanation for what a rooster egg could be. Or yeah. a third option would be it's a way for the alchemists to hint at each other. Wink, wink. This is bullshit. <laughs> yeah, that it's a code for something else. Yeah. Absolutely. But while researching this, I learned something really weird. Oh, it's all weird. Well, it's all pretty weird, but this is uh, this is one of those things that, like, you know, okay, at this point, as I learned this, I'm 52 years old, and I felt like, honestly, up to this week, that I had a pretty good grasp <laughs> on animal biology. I mean, I've watched a lot of documentaries. I've read a lot of biology books. And I was very surprised, Karen, to learn that roosters don't have penises. <laughs> Meanwhile, the ducks have mm -hmm. penises that are like longer Cold than their screwed. body length. I, I found out recently too that female birds just have one working ovary. Oh, really? So a lot of them have two ovaries, but only one is functional. And that that was, I think, to facilitate flight in some some birds. But I think chickens only have one working ovary. That's a hard-working ovary. That's a... <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, because they pretty much lay an egg a yeah. day. Now, admittedly, we, the the chickens we have today are not like the chickens of medieval times. 
right? I mean, they, they've they've been bred. Apparently not. If you go and look at illuminated manuscripts. Yeah, yeah. No, no, so just I mean, they, they've been really, really, really bred and conditioned, and and, and, and largely that's an American innovation. Um, the American um, uh, hen breeders really worked hard to make giant chickens that produce a lot of meat. I mean, you, you used to, you know, chickens a stew animal. Like you can get a yeah. lot of meat off of them, but you know, it's it's not like now. Now, you know, a chicken's mm. like a little turkey. I mean, they're huge. Um, yeah, and with some of the commercial farming too, the way that they uh, gear birds to think that it's summer or spring all year round. Um, when they're you know in cages and with bright lights, and so they're laying eggs constantly. So it turns out, ninety-seven percent of birds species don't have penises. That's a lot fewer penises than I expected. That's <laughs> yeah, I, I was not aware of that. Yeah, I mean that, we know so, some pretty weird stuff, but that is yeah. Indeed. But I mean that seems like worth mentioning. Also, a lot of reptiles. Don't, I mean, see the thing is, I knew about cloacas, right? So, so cloacas have, uh, you know, that's a single excretory orifice that handles reproduction and solid waste. And like birds, like when they poo, you know, it's a, it's like they don't have, they don't pee and poo. It's all like one liquidy mix, right? It's so it all comes out the one hole. But what? So like for roosters, no one's eating dinner while they're listening to this. I hope you're having chicken and eggs. So, so roosters uh, actually reproduce through what they call a cloacal kiss. So the the <laughs> the male and the female basically they go face to face and they join their cloacas up. And if everything's working well, uh, the rooster will pass sperm off to uh, the hen. And but it's it seems like a very discreet transaction. I mean, I've seen <laughs> these birds reproduce and somehow didn't know. I mean, there's a bunch of feathers and you know there's some busyness going on, but I didn't realize that uh, <laughs> that that's what was going on i thought there was a penis involved and feel i feel very i feel cheated (laughs) well i've heard too that uh hen can be inseminated for up to a month that they can store semen and sperm for that period that's pretty common in the animal world to store semen Uh, (laughs) I, i love the octopus because it will uh accept the sperm packet from the male and then just hold on to it till it's ready you know Thousands and thousands of babies. Yeah, and be- bees will, uh, you know, the queen gets her donation early on and then basically uses that for the rest of her mating life, I mean, for her reproductive life. Yeah, they're so, doing better than we are. <laughs> yeah, I mean. But I have to ask, all of this uh, chicken uh, bird reproductive uh, science, what's that got to do with a snake? Somewhere in the Middle Ages, this idea that, that a, a, a rooster egg could be incubated in a dunghill by a toad. Why a toad? I don't know. Like it's it's it's, 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 it's a little bit warty and and witchy and yeah. nasty. I yeah, I I it's it's all very peculiar. Yeah, I I've I did a lot of reading for this episode and nobody bothered to explain why a toad. But they also toads, didn't explain why roosters don't have penises. So, I mean, I, I had to yeah. do a lot of side research on this Yeah, one. <laughs> you've just got to take a lot of this <laughs> at face value. But, uh, but, yeah, I don't know if you've actually mentioned the name of this hybrid creature. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, so over time, in the Middle Ages, the basilisk has changed, in case you haven't caught up to this, in <laughs> from, from being just a basilisk to being more of a cockatrice. Those, mm-hmm. those terms are basically used interchangeably 
um, in the Middle Ages. It's confusing at first, though. Yeah. It really is. And the imagery of the animal has changed because now that it's formally called a cockatrice, it's presented in drawings and descriptions as being much more like a snake-rooster hybrid. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's like sometimes a, even a dragon. Yeah, it looks like a wyvern. And someone, so it's like a, a wyvern is a two-legged dragon. Um, and, of course, so not a true dragon with four legs. Uh, and mm-hmm. not a, not an Asian or Chinese dragon with you know the long skinny body, but so this is this is okay. a uh, a classic two legged wyvern type animal with bat wings and then a rooster's head. Um, these are all artists' uh, interpretations because obviously if they looked at it they would die. So you know they're just guessing. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just add to some confusion here because the first time that I'd heard of a cockatrice was uh, when I was studying medieval history and I had read about this being a particular dish, a food. And so I hadn't heard about it as being a a cryptid or some kind of monster. But apparently there was a practice in medieval times where they would cook um, the front end of a fowl and they would attach it to the back end of a pig. Oh, it's like a turducken. Yes, I guess an early version of that. But, yeah, so it wasn't with a snake. I mean, I I don't think that was common practice to be eating snakes then in, in England anyway, but uh, to mesh it with a pig. Yeah, that's... adds a level of complexity, I think, to the It does, it does. Uh, although everything is better with bacon, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not for everyone, but... <laughs> so what are the historical records of these creatures then, or and folkloric references too, because they are mentioned in such a wide range of literature. Yeah, so uh, in the first century, they're mentioned by Pliny the Elder, and he talks about them uh, in a lot of the terms that we understand now. So if you mm-hmm. see if you see their eyes, you die. Uh, they they say it's about twelve inches long. So I think that's the interpretation that twelve fingers is twelve inches. Um, that they have white markings on their head and look like that look like a crown. Mm-hmm. Um, they. Um, their sound can kill other snakes, like its hiss can kill other snakes. Um, its touch can scorch the grass. Uh, so he he has a lot mm. to say about it. And he also talks about his natural enemies, which we'll get to. Right. Uh, it's also mentioned in, I don't know if it's Lucan or Lucan um, in the first century, uh, which talks about it. It's mentioned in the Bible. Yes. Yeah, as the cockatrice, isn't it? Or, or is it? Uh, well, it depends. It depends. Both. It depends on which version you look at. The, it's mm-hmm. interchangeably. Some versions use basilisk. Some use cockatrice. Yeah, and some use dragon. And it's mentioned in Shakespeare too. I think several plays. And and obviously in many uh, medieval alchemy texts as well. So oh, and even um, uh, Canterbury Tales, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. So yeah, and I think that uh, Leonardo da Vinci had mentioned he did. The creature as he well. did. Yes, he did. Yeah, it, it's it's um it's quite a lot. I mean, it's 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 a very commonly believed in monster, mm-hmm. which you would think would be weird because I mean, why would they believe that this crazy creature could exist? And I think that maybe comes down to the question of like stories about when we run into them, so which we can get to. Yeah, and I think I mean, who knows if everyone who wrote about these creatures believed in them or whether they were reporting them as folklore. It's really difficult to tell. I mean, in Shakespeare, it seems more literary than necessarily 
a belief. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, Shakespeare makes all kinds of allusions um, to to various creatures and uh, spirits and folklore. Mm-hmm. So, oh yeah, yeah. And he's a you know he's a poet, so he might be speaking poetically. And of course, they're exactly. they're going to roll into figures of speech if people believe in them. You know, as dangerous as a basilisk. You know, as is mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. Also, the the alchemists. In, as I should have mentioned this too. They didn't just like mention these creatures for no reason. They mentioned these creatures because part of their alchemical processes included taking uh, basilisk skin and using it for its reagent properties, which included the ability to create sort of a fake gold. Um, so it, oh, could, it could make right. copper look like gold, which is, you know, handy. Yeah, that was one of the, the core beliefs of alchemy, wasn't it, turning yeah. Base metals into gold. Yeah. So they they didn't say that it could literally make things into gold, but it can make copper look like gold, which is yeah, not bad. So the basilisk and the cockatrice, however you prefer to refer to it, do they have any natural enemies? They have a few. I guess this is the um, if, <laughs> what our continuing feature of what to do if you run into a monster, right? This is important information. <laughs> That's right. So... <laughs> The the first natural enemy uh, is the weasel. The um, this this again this kind of ties into the idea that they're similar to cobras. The idea that there would be a mongoose or a ferret or a weasel, something in that um, that family. Family. Yeah. Uh, the, these these are uh, mammals that have a high resistance to toxins and do predate on snakes like frequently. That's part of the folklore. In addition to the weasel or ferret or mongoose type predators, also known as the ichneumon, the basilisk was also said to die if it was exposed to the crowing of a rooster. This was alluded to in the Harry Potter series. At this point in my discussion with Karen, I needed to talk about ancient theories about how eyesight worked. My original explanation was a bit muddled, so here's a briefer and more accurate version. Explanations of how eyesight worked were once torn between those who believed vision was created when we shot rays out of our eyes and those who believed that particles shot into our eyes. And these warring camps were known as the extramissionists and the intromissionists. You've got the Platonic and Pythagorean camp on the first side and Democritus and others on the latter side. Aristotle seemed to have cue closer to our modern understanding, but the idea was still hotly being contested well into the Middle Ages. I've put a link in the show notes about this debate, but current vision theories are built around the idea that light receptor cells and brain interpretation are what creates our vision, which sentences the basilisk's so-called death gaze to the realm of magic and fantasy. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. 
Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole yeah. show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. If the idea is that its, its vision like literally shoots out you know, death rays... Mm-hmm. It makes sense that one of the defenses you can use against it is a mirror. If it sees itself, well, yeah. <laughs> it kills itself. Okay. Which, again, this whole idea that in order to create them, you have to go through this complicated alchemical magical process makes mm-hmm. sense because if they reproduced normally and were not allowed to, like, if they saw each other, they would kill each other. That yes. it, it, you'd have to how else how do you make them right? I mean, yeah. like it, it makes sense that <laughs> it's it dangerous would, stuff. Obviously, you need a toad and a pile of shit. So, yeah. <laughs> all natural conclusion. <laughs> it, it just makes good sense. So, but the, that's the most common ways to get rid of them. I've heard of some stories where uh, soldiers or knights would attempt to kill them, and even when they were dead, that they could still spurt out. Oh, oh, it's they're really dangerous. Like, okay, for example, it, one of the stories is that a guy with a lance kills one by piercing it with a lance. The poison just shoots up the lance and then goes onto the arm of the knight and kills the knight too. And the horse. Okay, they're very lethal. In Dungeons and Dragons, they have, you know, uh, both the basilisk and the cockatrice. They both exist in the D&D world. And... They basically made the basilisk like an eight-legged lizard, and the cockatrice looks like a wyvern with a rooster head. Uh, but both of them, they they are not even close to being as lethal as the actual folklore. Uh, so, yeah, dangerous, dangerous critters. So are there any other ways to kill them? Those are the ones that were listed, um, like in the in the folklore uh, that I I saw. I I, I think the main thing is uh, you don't want to run into one of these things. I mean, they they. Just getting near them kills. In fact, if we talk about some of the history around like actual cases, they start to sound like something different. Right. Oh, well, we can start talking about that, about whether they're mythical or historical. There's a couple of real historic – well, real is probably the wrong word. There's a couple of – <laughs> historical records. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's historical records about stories about these animals being encountered. And mm-hmm. probably the most famous is the Warsaw Basilisk of 1587. 
uh, we've had uh, Mike Dash on the show before, uh, and I love yes. his research. He's got a mm-hmm. great article talking about the Warsaw Basilisk of 1587. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's from Smithsonian. It's a fantastic article because mm-hmm. it sort of addresses this idea that I talked about, the sort of the dangers of euhemerism. I read that as euphemism, but... <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> so so basically, but the short version is there's a, a house in Warsaw, in Poland, mm-hmm. and a little girl has disappeared, and they're looking for her, and her mistress is trying to find her and sees her in the basement of this old abandoned building. And she goes in to get the girl down in the cellar, and then she falls down dead. Mm. And then other people come, and then someone else falls down dead. And ultimately, they realize that something horrible is down there. They realize it's a basilisk. And so they come up with this idea of uh, sending someone in wearing mirrored armor, mm. protecting, the, protecting them. Uh, and so they, send, they end up getting a guy who's sort of a, a convicted uh, bad guy. He'll be pardoned if he survives his encounter, and he goes in and successfully kills the basilisk, and you know, and then they're able to get the bodies out, and and that you know basically frees it up. That's a real building. The building is still there. There's a restaurant now called the Basilisk. Oh, how apt! <laughs> yeah, but but it's a strange story. Like I mean, the like the guy who has the missing daughter. His name is Makeropeus. Uh, which is like a Latinate name. And so I, 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 here's, here's the risk, I think. I think as a, as a skeptical investigator of monster stories, these things happen. The basilisk lives in caves and cellars, okay? Mm-hmm. When people go in to investigate, they fall over dead. What does that mm-hmm. sound like? like? To me, it sounds like a gas leak. Like there's there's like you know a natural gas leak or something and the people are running out of oxygen and dying and it's easy to say oh people go oh. in and they fall over dead Pfft, there's a monster in there <laughs> that that is an interesting idea uh, especially since this seems to appear across cultures yeah. and across time um, that there, if there is some kind of common thread there um, I mean that's an interesting theory and might be the case in some cases. It might be, and it certainly could. I mean, like if you're just trying to say, why do people believe this myth? You know, the idea that a poisonous gas is being emitted not by the ground, but by a beast that's living in the cave. That that's that makes great folkloric sense. Mm-hmm. But in this particular case, that's not what's going on. And I think it's really interesting. Like, you, I really recommend people check out Mike Dash's article. Uh, I'm going to spoil it, though, because we don't have time to read his whole research and it wouldn't be appropriate to do so. Sure. But but there's codes in the text that make it clear that this story is actually about a humanist and it's about mm. this humanist movement at the time. So the idea that there's a Latin name uh, would have been inappropriate for uh, Poland at the time, mm-hmm. right? So right. it's 16th century. It's like this is actually a text about something else, and it's about using science and and other things. It's not a story. Mm. It's not a literal story about a monster. It's 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 much more hooded or you know um, c- 
concealed story. It's 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 got Rosicrucian elements. It's got a lot of interesting stuff going wow. on. Yeah. So it sounds it. I mean, all of this is so complex. It is complicated. Yeah. yeah. It's very it's very coded and it's complicated. And I, I again, I'm probably not doing a great summary here, but it's more like there's this text that describes a monster but there's hints in it that it's actually an allegorical story about something else but now people get the story and they're like look there was there was a basilisk in warsaw it's a real yes. thing that happened but it's not yep. that's not it you know it's it's you need to know the historical context and i think dash does a great job as always i mean i really like his research mm -hmm. he does a great job of saying look you need to understand what this is coming mm -hmm. from so yeah Look, lots of things going on here. Yeah, and uh, the other case happened in England, and I have screwed up and not put the link in my show notes here. Oh, sadly, at this point, I couldn't recall the legend of the Renwick Cockatrice, but it is so brief that I'll just insert it here. The 1794 work titled The History of the County of Cumberland recounts the story of why one local estate owner didn't have to pay church tithes. It seems that about 200 years before, his ancestor was said to have slain the cockatrice and was thus exempt from tithes. However, the folklore around the story is quite muddled, and a separate story about a cockatrice that was inhabiting the ruins of a church had become hybridized such that it's now common to read this all as one single narrative of an ancestor who became a hero by taking a spear from a rowan tree and slaying the loathsome winged beast and thus freeing his family from an obligation to pay tithing. Paranormal Cumbria, a 2012 book by Jeff Holder, has the most thorough collection of origin material I've been able to find on this legend. A link is in the show notes. Those are the two big cases I'm aware of. Like, so you've got these historical references. Then you've got a couple of medieval cases where they talk about actually having a basilisk show up. And mm. these stories are very similar uh, where it's, it involves you know a cellar or a basement or a cave um, and again, it really does remind me very much of a poisonous gas and like using that as an explanation. But again, I think there's yeah, other things going on. So could have could have even been a, a case that did occur somewhere and then was transported to England or, or to Poland. Yeah, it's also true. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's hard to get to the bottom of this, but. I think uh, it's interesting to talk about just all the layers of this story, these stories. True. But we talked about that with the, the Beast of Gévaudan is like it appeared in, in France and had real, like real historical, you know, corpses piled up, you know. Mm. But at the same time, it was being retold in England as kind of mocking the rural peasants of France. And similarly, I think uh, some of these stories get like one country's tragedy is another country's mockery. You know, like that that kind of happens, too. So, oh, yeah, you have a lot of rivalry going on then for sure. Absolutely. But are there any real basilisks in the animal kingdom? You're talking about the Jesus lizard. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it a great name? Although the common basilisk. Yeah, the common basilisk. These are fascinating lizards. These are these are lizards in the New World. Um why is it called the Jesus lizard? Because it can turn water into wine, Karen. No. <laughs> Wouldn't that be handy? No, yeah. because they can run on water. They, 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 You may have seen these in commercials and documentaries. These are crested lizards, so they do have that sort of regal crown that was you know, talked about in the original basilisk lore. But, yep. but they, th what these lizards do is when they're scared or frightened, 
they run away and try to get across water, but they run on their hind legs. They've got big web feet and they run so fast. They literally run oh, yeah. across the top of the water. It is stunning. It uh, remind me a little bit of the Australian frilled neck lizard, which we used to have on our one cent coin, but they, they run in a similar fashion. It's, it's very cute. It is cute. It's a, it's amazing. I mean, I'm sure it's extremely effective. And I mean, you see it, I'd love to see one in real life because I, I've seen them in slow motion. I've seen them at regular speed, and they're just stunning. But incredible! I, I, it's got to be amazing to like abs- accidentally spook one and it just runs across a, a creek or something. You know, that's mm-hmm. wow! <laughs> yeah. That is so neat. Yeah, they're very cute. But what about uh, other animals that could have possibly inspired the basilisk as well? well? I mean, you've kind of spoken about a few well the cobra i mean the cobra sounds the closest because like the spitting cobra and the king cobra they both rear up and but i mean the thing the thing that kind of disqualifies them is we know that like even in ancient egypt they knew exactly what a cobra was and they incorporated it into their regal headwear and stuff it was like a a religious symbol for yeah yeah. exactly so they knew what cobras were and that's not a basilisk so Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm inclined to think the basilisk is an entirely mythological folklore creature that's kind of a uh, a conglomerate of, of different ideas. And over time, it's just evolved into a nonsense chimeric animal. But but they're, they they have been in our folklore for, you know, more than 2,000 years. I mean, so... Mm-hmm. And uh, th- there's fascinating well, stories about them. So I mean, they've they've rolled into pop culture, and they're just they're mm-hmm. they're 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 weirdly underappreciated and underrecognized. I think because um, I, if you say basilisk, I think most people probably don't know what you're talking about. Yet they've appeared in some like you know really interesting uh, intellectual properties. Yes, and we'll get to pop culture in a second. But I, I you just made me think too of uh, Genesis in the Bible and the reference to the snake. Uh, the Garden of Eden. Do you think that there's any possible link there between that snake and the the basilisk, or not? I, I don't. I, I don't think so. The the serpent in the Bible is interesting because it starts out as the most beautiful animal in the in the kingdom, and then it's punished by having its legs removed mm-hmm. and turned into like it, it shall crawl on the to ground. Slither you on know? the ground. Yeah, yeah. and that. I find that story of Genesis so fascinating because, you know, if you read it literally, uh, like a lot of, like when I was, you know, grew up in the church, uh, in a fundamentalist church, you know, I was, I was told to take it literally. But if you step away from oh, that and yeah, go, I never have been. well, <laughs> I know, but if you, if you step out and go into like biblical, not like you could look at the Bible as literature or you can look at the Bible as sure. a, bi- a biblical scholar and use textual mm-hmm. analysis. And it seems mm-hmm. like the, the Bible, like at least the book of Genesis is actually a combination of multiple creation myths, which is just wow. fascinating. And mm-hmm. uh, there's multiple ways of reading the story of Eden, which I, I can't stop thinking about. So one of the most common ideas, in, especially in the past 50 years, uh, is this idea that like that we are uh, on the verge of an apocalypse and that Jesus is coming back soon and everything's going to end and um, that all the evil are going to fall into hell and the you know there, my, some people are like they believe in that the the Christians will be or the, the believers the faithful will be lifted up into heaven and there'll be an age of tribulation and some people believe that it'll all just come to an end. There's a lot of interpretations, right? 
But, sure. yeah. but what I find fascinating is their fa- their, the focus on this idea of the Luciferian, right? So if you go back and look at the, the story, it's not that clear that the snake is the bad guy. I know that sounds weird, but it it's not that clear. Like if everything's God's plan, right? Mm-hmm. How does the snake become associated with Satan and Lucifer and Beelzebub? Like they, what's happened is over time, this complicated story has been simplified and smushed into there being like a good guy and a bad guy. And that's the whole story. And it's, it's actually mm-hmm. probably more complicated than that. Like it, mm-hmm. like originally it was more complicated than that. Like, but over thousands of years, the story has gotten muddled, which, sure. which is, you know, that's this, I'm not here to talk Subject about faith. Maybe another yeah, story. <laughs> exactly. But, but the most fascinating interpretation of that story the one that just haunts me is this. What if this story is not about people falling from God's grace, but it's about escaping from the simplistic world of the garden? So in other words, if you think about it, it's a lot like the story of Prometheus because the tree that that they're not supposed to eat the fruit of is the tree of knowledge. And so basically once they eat from the tree of knowledge, they're forced to no longer have everything handed to them. They have to leave the garden and learn how to survive in the world. Like literally everything that we have accomplished as a human species happens because of knowledge, because of our ability to accrue knowledge and learn. And so in that sense, Lucifer, as his other interpretation is Lucifer Lightbringer, uh, Mm -hmm. is like really metaphorically powerful. But even mm-hmm. so, that snake's not Lucifer. That's, that snake is the serpent. I mean, that's literally what it's described as. And so, mm-hmm. like, yeah. these are all mashed up ideas. But, oh, yeah. I mean, it's a, a lot of that incredibly <laughs> complicated ideas. And so, yeah. you know, in lots of ways to interpret it. And I know that some people take it very, very literally. But I, I, I can't escape that fascination of sort of seeing this as more of a Prometheus story and somehow the thing that freed us from this simplistic world is actually the thing that made us this, this world we live in now possible. I like this world. I mean, even with the pandemic going on, I think this world's pretty cool and people are able to do all kinds of interesting things. So, you know, yeah, it's all about perspective, I guess, but we we should treat this in another show. I think. Yeah, maybe um, at least the basilisk and (laughs) about pop culture, because I think that, uh, most people would know the basilisk from a particular series of books. You're right. Um, I, you're talking about the Harry Potter books, right? Yes. Yeah. Indeed. And really, there have not been a lot of basilisk representations in pop culture, but the Harry Potter one is a biggie. I mean, they, they do appear in the Dungeons and Dragons books as, you know, even the earliest versions include both the basilisk and the cockatrice uh, as separate mm-hmm. monsters. But uh, the Harry Potter series has uh, the Chamber of Secrets. The secret is that there's a basilisk living under Hogwarts. You know, sorry, spoilers. Um, (laughs) If they haven't read it by now. (laughs) And not only does it turn people to stone, but it also uh, it has incredibly potent venom, which they use later to kill Horcruxes, which are the things that... uh, Wow, I know too much about Harry Potter. I should probably stop. But it, yeah, <laughs> you do. But it, it seems to be a different beast in in some regards. It seems to be a lot larger. Well, it is larger, but there are basilisks. 
Yeah, stories. Yeah, there there are basilisk stories that make them into giant serpents because it goes back to that king of the serpents. That this this idea that because it's super powerful, it's maybe it should literally be a giant snake. You know, and you and I covered the the giant snake lore and the idea that you know the snakes can get quite large, but except mm-hmm. in prehistoric times, there's never been a fifty foot snake. Like thirty feet seems to be just about as big as they can get these days. So big enough, which is big enough, exactly. It's huge, right? You know. <laughs> And you're not likely to encounter a 30-foot serpent. That, that, that's probably the maximum that you could probably run into. But even so, uh, it, there's no snake alive today that kills with its breath, kills with its vision, makes all the birds fall dead, and then kills all the other snakes nearby and can turn copper into gold. I think it's safe to say that the basilisk in folklore is a non-existent uh, monster. But a fascinating one, which I'm, I think the world is richer for having as part of our human lore. It really is. But you wanted to tell me, too, about a modern basilisk that seems to have scared a lot of people <laughs> going back I, a few years I, ago? Yeah, I've been trying to get this onto the show for a long time. So I, I think I'm excited to actually talk about this. So, you, Yeah, you have the floor. In 2010, there's a website out there called Less Wrong. And it's um, a website... Uh, that discusses philosophy, artificial intelligence, game theory, lots of really interesting sort of intellectual ideas. Uh, if you're into that sort of thing, I'm I'm actually weirdly like I like philosophy, but um, not my thing. I mean, you know, maybe mm-hmm. at a coffee yeah. shop, you know, on the occasional, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like or a the, bar, yeah, a bar, like yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, there's occasions when I think it's fun to discuss, but I mean. Man, uh, people can get really caught up with themselves, and that, I think that's a the dangerous downside of philosophy is uh, too much navel gazing is uh, sure. ma- maybe yeah. hazardous to your social life. I don't know, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like it. But but this user on the website, less wrong, named Rocco, wrote an idea down, and basically. He hypothesized something that's become known as Rocco's Basilisk. Now, if you're the kind of person who thinks that AI is eventually going to come to pass in the sort of Star Trek sense or that there's going to eventually be artificial intelligence that are like people and human companions and they're going to be just like another living person and that's something you firmly believe in and you believe in the singularity. Right. That's what I was thinking of. You might want to stop listening, honestly, because you might actually be frightened by what we're about to talk about. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't it, like like this has become known as an information hazard. Um, the idea that an idea itself can be dangerous. Personally, I'm very skeptical um, and, to the point that I'm very comfortable talking about this. But but I understand the impulse. And so um, here's your chance to drop off and go watch something else or listen to something else. All right. Are the scaredy cats gone? Okay. I'm going to assume that they are. We're going to move on. All right. All right. So what Rocco proposed, and I'll put links to this in the show notes, Mm -hmm. it's this idea that it's possible that in the future we might create an artificial intelligence that is designed to benefit humankind and be sort of an all-powerful artificial 
sentient entity that mm-hmm. is capable of doing just about anything, right? Okay. And among the many things it can do is it can look at the existing people in the world and it can figure out who among us knew that it was possible for this creature or this entity to come into existence and okay. who who among them worked to help make that happen and who among us did not. Okay? Okay. And consequences. And consequently, it could punish the people that didn't help it. And so Roko's idea was, if we know this thing might come into existence, it's Mm -hmm. in our best interest to work towards its eventual creation. Because if you don't, it might be able to punish you for not having helped out. Yes, it might be vengeful. (laughs) And so you risk, if you don't help create Roko's Basilisk, if you don't help create this AI, you risk Mm -hmm. the possibility of being tortured. And not just tortured in this life, but potentially it will have the power to create copies of you in an artificial world and do nothing but torture you for all eternity. Now, I think there's some real holes in this idea. I just want to say that right now. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, like a reasonable person is going to have to be able to accept the idea that a, an artificial intelligence could be created, which mm-hmm. which has the power to discern who helped it and who didn't. Right. right. Okay. And then to somehow exert control in the real world to make this person suffer. Uh, no, I don't believe that at all. Like, I think there's so many problems with this idea. Okay, but here's what happened. Rocco posted it. He he posted his thing, and, and it freaked out people on the site. Now, the guy who runs the site is uh, Eliezer Yadowski. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Okay. He got very upset, um... At the whole thing. I mean, he, he posted a very angry rebuke to Rocco and deleted the post. Mm. But he now says that the reason he deleted the post was because, not because he thought Rocco's Basilisk was real, but because it's harmful to post information hazards, even if they're not real. Like, it's a bad idea. Like, there are ideas that are dangerous and you shouldn't be posting them. Right. And so it's malicious. Right. And so he's written some very lengthy explanations for why he f- got mad and yelled and, and, and deleted mm. stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. At the original post, I can sort of see that maybe that's what he was saying, but it looks a lot more like, oh my God, what are you doing? You're a crazy person. Like, you know, <laughs> let's not spread yes. this idea. Of course, trying to suppress an idea is one of the best ways to make the idea spread. Yeah, yeah, and to make himself a victim. Also true. So <laughs> what happened, though, is like in 2014, I think it was Slate and a few other sites started running stories about Rocco's Basilisk. And they wrote it like it was a real hazard, right? And so it's created more existential angst around artificial intelligence than is probably warranted, right? Mm-hmm. I think pop culture makes artificial intelligence seem like something that is 
first of all, inevitable, and B, will be something that we can understand as in it'll be like us, right? Right. Yep. So we can fathom. Yeah. And the best case scenario is like the one on Star Trek where you ask it questions and it politely follows your instructions, right? So even there, there's all kinds of you know problems that show up in the series around artificial intelligence. But here's the thing. We don't know what intelligence is. We don't know what consciousness is. And we aren't capable of simulating things that we can't first quantify. So there's, there's no current risk that we're going to create an artificial intelligence like us that turns out to, like us, be malicious and vindictive. That's just not possible because we can't model a thing that we don't even understand, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's part one. And part two is that we don't have the computing power or even close to it to do the kind of thing that's being discussed here. Everything we do now exists on machines that require electricity and Mm -hmm. maintenance and humans. And even if we we somehow merge robots with our best artificial intelligence, they're not going to be autonomous. They need our help. They're not that powerful. They Mm -hmm. aren't able to go make electricity. They're not able to make hands and feet. They aren't able to interact with the corporeal world in that way. They could mess up our data, but that's about it. I mean, they can't, like, they they don't have robot agents out here, you know, doing stuff. Like, that's just not, they, they, we, you turn off the electricity, you turn off the problem. Okay. So that's, but I guess it's, it's just one idea of one perspective of of AI, but it also makes me think about Pascal's wager a little bit, that there's kind of that to it. it. It is like, I mean, if, if you think this is real, or could be real, it's absolutely in your best interest to work towards the creation of this artificial intelligence. Because, you know, you don't want the negative consequences. But I mean, as a, like a reasonable person working in IT, I can see we're no, not even remotely close to this. I mean, I know there's lots of people who think that the singularity is coming and they're going to offload their Mm -hmm. consciousness in the machine. You don't even know what consciousness is. You can't, you can't back up a thing that you don't understand into a machine because that's not how it works. People need to understand that the human mind is far more complicated and weirder than any simulation can manage. I mean, for example, like during your day, you're not largely a rational being. You're largely interacting based on your biology needs. Like you're hungry, oh, yeah. you're thirsty, mm-hmm. you're horny, uh, you're bored. Mm-hmm. Like all these things drive your behaviors and they have nothing to do with rational outcomes. And computers, oh, yeah, yeah you, a computer wouldn't understand vindictiveness because it doesn't make any sense. Like, why be vindictive? Like that's an yep. emotion. Like that that yep. human com- quality. Yeah. yeah. So I, who would bother to to program greed or lust or vengeance or jealousy into a computer? It doesn't make any sense. Like it just even if you could, why would you? Like so I mean, the, the, this is not a flaw in the AI. It's a flaw in humanity that we like to imagine ourselves onto everything else we run into. So I it, it's fascinating. But it's just not a real thing to be worried about. There's there's lots more real world stuff like, you know, oh, basilisks. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> Everyday stuff. But it's an interesting subplot to this. No, it's topic. fascinating. It's fascinating. <laughs> well, you've got one final point 
uh, and and I have no idea what you're referring to here. But what has all of this got to do with Elon Musk, if anything? So this (laughs) cracks me up. I, I this is so so you know I have a some kind of condition around wordplay. Oh yes, yeah. Yeah. So. Be in and out of uh, rehab. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've gone to uh, pun counseling and uh, yeah, you know, like, failed. <laughs> Primal pun therapy. The, the yeah. way I came across this cracks me up. So I had this joke in my mind. Um, so. You've got Rocco's Basilisk, and that kind of suggests a joke of Rococo Basilisk. So Rococo is this super ornate art style Mm -hmm. architectural movement. Like um, if you look at um, the Versailles Palace in France or, you know, Donald Trump's apartment, uh, like like this (laughs) giant – like. It, like exact gold and filigree yeah. and like all this stuff that that excessively ornate stuff is rococo. And Shabby I thought, shape. Well, well, I thought rococo's basilisk is a funny joke. Let's see if anybody's already made that joke. Oh, guess who? Uh, it turned You're, out Elon Musk. Good company. Yeah. Well, Elon <laughs> Musk was going to make the joke, and Elon Musk decided to do the same thing I did: was see if anybody else has made the joke before he makes it. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> but so he goes to see who's made the joke and allegedly he finds out that the Canadian musician named Grimes made the joke. Oh, oh was that uh-huh. I get it. That was how they met. Exactly. They met because of the same wordplay. They met because of a joke about the basilisk. Rococo's basilisk. So yeah, um, so apparently what I've learned from all this is that I should be in a, I should be in a three way with uh Grimes and Elon. That's what I've learned. That's probably That's, not the right lesson. Yeah, it, it used to be the case. <laughs> but seriously, though, that I, I think that it, is bizarre. It is very bizarre. So I, I, when I found that out, I was like, "Oh, you got to be joking me!" But uh, but no, that's really true. And um, you know, Elon Musk is a, a very controversial person. He's Times Man of the Year, and um, it sounds like uh, the two of them uh, will not be staying together. Although they have made a baby. Uh, whose name uh, you, you is, cannot pronounce. I cannot yep. pronounce, exactly. So, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, good for them. Uh, I mean, for all their other faults, at least we all share the same wordplay, right? <laughs> yes. That's a really interesting way to end the show. <laughs> wow, I didn't think it would uh, go off on some of these tangents. That's you know, I love it. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> if, if we learned anything is that roosters don't have penises, but ducks are really packing some heat. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we keep coming back to that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I well, mean, d- d- seriously, preparing for this episode has altered my world because I was, I was. Rabbit holes. It took me, well, it took me a couple of days to re- like come to grips with these birds don't have penises. I mean, that really is weird to me. How did I get to be this old and not know that? That is so weird. So weird. Well, yeah, I think you've helped out a lot of people in the making of this show. Yeah, so, so I, I, I hope that I have... We're, uh, we're all enriched for yeah. that knowledge. Filled in a lot of empty spaces. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Well, so uh, that concludes our initial coverage of the Basilisk. <laughs> and, yeah, it was about time, not before time. A lot of uh, requests for the topic, too, and... Um, so I'm glad that we've uh, we've treated this topic. Me too. Me too. <laughs> they have no uh, penises. 
They have no penises. <laughs> and I guess this will be the first uh, regular podcast episode for the year. Yeah. Happy New Year. So Yeah. Happy New Year to you and to all of our listeners and viewers. Likewise. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it's going to be a fun one. Lots of monsters this year. Indeed. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You've been listening to a discussion of the mythological beast known as the Basilisk. Our show notes are full of further reading links if you'd like to learn more about the material that led to this episode. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones, and we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks for listening and for your positive reviews. Your endorsement is our very best and most effective way of growing our amazing Monster Talk audience. Monster House presentation.